Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On the Bechdel cast, the questions asked if movies have women in them. Are all their discussions just boyfriends and husbands, or do they have individualism? The patriarchy's effing vast. Start changing it with the Bechdel cast. Written on the pages is the answer to the never-ending podcast. <laughs> That's a lot of them. That's some of ours. I mean, episodes that never end and then the podcast itself never-ending. I'd be lying if a few different titles didn't come to name when you said the never-ending podcast. And there's... <laughs> Ooh. Care to share? No, of course not. Okay. Uh, <laughs> But um, but I that was beautiful singing. I mm. kind of miss and I really enjoy when a movie starts with a whole entire song playing. Yeah. And you just know who everyone's name is. For some reason, that's very satisfying. I feel like I'm being like lowered into a warm bath. It's nice. Well, this was also the era when there would be a like three or four minute credit sequence yeah. where it's just the credits and maybe some like vague images from the world mm -hmm. but really just people's names on the screen yeah kind of we don't do me that of, anymore like, the the first tim burton batman movie similar vibe it's just the bat signal and four minutes of mm. credits and music and you're like <laughs> yes for some reason yeah. i think maybe i'm just like my Either I, I, my brain is just slowly shrinking and I'm like, wow, less stimulation. That was awesome. I loved that. <laughs> that was really good. Oh, I'm so excited oh. for today's episode. Welcome to the Bechtel cast. My name is Jamie Loftus. My name is Caitlin Durante, and this is our show where we examine movies through an intersectional feminist lens using the Bechtel test simply as a jumping off point to initiate a larger conversation. Sure is. But Jamie, 
What is the Bechdel test? Well, it's a media metric created by queer cartoonist Alison Bechdel originally in her comic Dykes to Watch Out For. Started kind of as a one-off bit, but has since become a commonly accepted media metric. Sometimes it's called the Bechdel-Wallace test. Mm. A lot of versions of the test. Ooh, I'm like kind of feeling good about how this sentence is going. You're on a roll, Jamie. A lot of versions of how this test go. Here's the one we use. We require that there are two characters of a marginalized gender with names who speak to each other about something other than a man for two lines of impactful dialogue. What does impactful mean? Well, like it just not open to interpretation. Not nothing. Maybe. You know? Yeah. And today, ooh, we got a little bit, a bit of a head scratcher today. Um, but we have an incredible uh-huh. movie, an incredible returning guest, and I'm very excited to get started. Yes, we are covering the never-ending story with our guest, who is a writer and performer. You know her from Rutherford Falls, and more famously, our episode on the Vavitch. <laughs> it's Janish Meeting. Hello, and welcome back. Welcome back. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I love this podcast and I am so delighted and honored to be a guest again. Oh my goodness. Uh, We're so honored to have you back. Especially for one of my childhood hits. Yeah. Quite honestly. I'm so excited to hear. Yeah. What, what What's your like history and experience with this movie? Um, deep. It's deep history. <laughs> I grew up, I was born in 81. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in the 80s with you know, I think I'm, I might start a podcast about this because I am so fascinated. I'm still fascinated by, like, how macabre and and dark and, like, sci-fi fantasy-ish the 80s were in terms of cinema. Like, mm-hmm. especially for kids. Like, for children's content. Yeah. Trusting that kids can deal with serious content and and grand grandiose content. Like... High concept stuff. High concept. Yeah. Like... And, like, the practical effects of the 80s. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, so, like, I was born and raised in that era of just, like, throwing all kinds of insane shit at kids. Mm-hmm. And this was one of my favorites. It was sort of, like, always in the library along with Willow and The Last Unicorn and, mm-hmm. you know, Legend and other weird freaky things from the era. I was getting pretty strong Labyrinth vibes as sure. well as yes. Princess Bride Yes. Um, mm-hmm. upon rewatching this. God, that is a lot of weird 80s kids movies. I <laughs> I feel cheated. Oh, as a child of the 90s, you mean? <laughs> yeah, I just got a bunch of really loud cartoons. Not that I, but, but I do love a really loud cartoon. Sure. I do feel like the 90s sort of switched in terms of like children's, media Mm -hmm. i feel like it made a hard turn into like ya social drama like Mm -hmm. i don't know it just it wasn't as like fantastical as the 80s were and and i'm so interested this is why i need to do a podcast about this because i'm so (laughs) interested in why it was this way and it has to have something to do with you know reagan era politics Mm -hmm. and you know the um space wars and uh, you know all of that <laughs> right what is it called no cold war the cold <laughs> same thing but also i feel like there was probably some space wars happening yeah, there's, there's there's like sputnik there was certainly star wars happening space yes. race is space war <laughs> space race 
mm-hmm. space wars yeah i kind of am wondering i'm like i wonder when that's going to come back around too because that does seem like the sort of thing that will come back around if it hasn't already and i just um don't know any children <laughs> right same <laughs> um so so jana you just you, this is one of the movies that was just like in your rotation as a child yes. yeah yes watched it once a month probably Ooh, Whoa. nice jamie what about you what's your history i had nothing i knew the song Mm. i knew the kind of the basics of like it was like a fantastical 80s kids movie but i didn't grow up with this one um i don't know why like i lived in a sci-fi avoidant house i resent that um and Mm. and have had to like sort of do the sci-fi um work on my own as an adult but yeah i i just never came into contact with this one and, you know, normally it takes a couple hours to prepare for a Bechtelcast episode, but it took up like an entire day because I watched it two times <laughs> and then I wanted to know about the writer and the writer had this like kind of really beautiful and inspiring marriage that was making me cry. And I just like oh. really went to another, um, <laughs> I went to did my Did you go to Fantasia, Fantasia maybe? Wow. Yeah. Yeah, in a way I did, Caitlin, in a way I did. Beautiful. But I just had like the best time. Um, I journaled about it. It was like a whole thing. I'm so excited to talk about this movie. It really affected me. (laughs) Oh my goodness. So I'm a new but enthusiastic convert. Caitlin, what about you? I did see this movie as a child, but it wasn't in my rotation, really. I think I saw it like probably once or twice as a kid, Mm -hmm. but... If I'm remembering correctly, Falcor freaked me out. I could not. That tracks. <laughs> I do. Steal. I do see that. And I was reminded of this when I was rewatching it to prep for this episode, and I was once again freaked out by Falcor. <laughs> yeah. So it's a little freaky. If it's not Falcor, it's the rock biter. If it's not the rock yeah. biter, it's the bat guy. If it's the Oracle Ooh, the who shoots guy. lasers out of her tits, like. <laughs> This movie is terrifying. <laughs> it is. I think it would have been the bat guy for me if I was a kid. Yeah. Falcor, though, it sort of like, I had a moment where I'm like, they don't make them like this anymore. And maybe that's for the best. <laughs> where like, they, where Atreyu is like really getting in there, scratching Falcor. And Falcor's making these kind of like, yes. he's making orgasmic. These he's enjoying yeah. it. Um, too much and it just kind of goes on for a little while and then later when he gets like that like shot that huge shot or whatever oh my god yeah and there's like a cracking noise i was like falcor is in it (laughs) yeah i don't know but i i did love falcor but he was a little too into the the scratches not my business yeah agree and i also did not enjoy that they basically made no effort to have his mouth movements match up with his dialogue oh, it's just like a very like slow <laughs> like <laughs> opening and closing of his mouth and but he's like speaking in full complex sentences and i <laughs> was also like i don't like this i was i was kind of very charmed by that that's like ooh. There's like a needlessly detailed piece about that somewhere. Because I used to be, Caitlin, I feel like I've talked about it on the show before. I feel like if like animal mouths and how they move in like practical oh. effects or CG stuff has yeah. has such, because it's like Falcor, there's no sink. <laughs> and that doesn't scare me. Okay. In the 90s, it kind of changes. And there's like an era where it's like real looking animals that never blink but yeah. their mouths are going like and that yeah. really scared me 
I remember <laughs> telling my uncle I needed to leave a screening of cats and dogs. I was just going to say, I was, was like freaking me out. I was so disturbed by that overly active mouth I felt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now you have CG mouths that are kind of like people mouths. And that's also kind of like this. Uh, it just, it, no one's quite gotten the whole mouth thing correct. No one can figure it out. Or then you have like... Yeah. The live action remake of The Lion King, where you have these like photorealistic animals who are just also kind of like flapping their mouths open and closed, and just, ugh, no one it seems wrong. The only talking animal in a movie that looks awesome is Paddington. So, and even then, <laughs> sorry, Caitlin, not always. <gasps> like, how <laughs> sometimes, dare. sometimes, especially when he's wet. So, I feel like I'm like being on, I'm just being honest with you. I don't like how Paddington looks when he's wet. <laughs> I choose um, best animal, I choose T Rex from Jurassic Park. Okay, because yes. well, T Rex oh, isn't yes. speaking, yes. and, and it's sh- that's how it should be. Yeah, he's he's <laughs> roaring and it matches up and it looks good. Um, yeah. excuse me, don't you mean she is roaring? Oh, yes. yes, clever girl. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, shall so, I? So, Caitlin, you were afraid of Falcor. Yes, and that's your history with it. That is okay. my history. And I and I haven't seen there are two sequels, which we all kind of learned within the past 10 minutes before recording. And I haven't seen those. And there is a novel that this movie is adapted from, which I also have not read. So there's like source material. There's a whole trilogy of movies, but I have pretty limited experience. I would like to talk about the I mean, I I, had, I did a little bit of research on the novel. I'd love to talk about it with mm-hmm. you both once we've recapped the movie because it's it's really interesting yeah um, can't wait to hear it yeah well let's take a quick break and then we'll come back for the recap bean dad the dress 30 to 50 feral hogs if you knew what any of those were you spend too much time online and hey i do too 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... 
We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. Okay. We meet Bastion. He's a little boy. Mm -hmm. He tells his dad about another dream he has had about his mother, who has died recently. And his dad is like, Bastion, it's time to move on. Stop daydreaming. Stop thinking about unicorns and start facing your problems. Meanwhile, Bastion is like eight years old. Yes. (laughs) And his dad, like I know, I resent this term, even though I've used it so heavily, but like his dad is a girl boss. It's hard to explain. (laughs) Yeah. Well, because he get your ass to work, Bastion. (laughs) Yes, do Kim Kardashian. Yeah. Well, then his dad get up and work. (laughs) Then his dad proceeds to drink a bunch of raw eggs that he blended in the blender, and then just drinks as a drink. Now that is what scares me: the dad and the (laughs) the raw eggs. That has always, always gotten my goat. Since I was a kid, I was like, "What the hell is he making?" What is this? Who is that? He's into Jordan Peterson now. Wherever that dad is, he found Jordan Peterson and is eating raw meat somewhere. That Yeah, that was like, I had to rewind to make sure that is what in fact happened. It is. There is like something so, I think like, again, just like there's so many elements of this movie that feel like rare of like, oh, you never see anything like that. Like a parent that just like, or just an adult who's like, refusing to grieve in a way that is like alarming which is so Mm -hmm. common but you're like oh and this guy it's manifesting in going to work and drinking eggs like yeah all right okay (laughs) and potential homophobia i was getting i like had never read read into this deeply but when i was watching yesterday i was like Bastion is showing some very clear signs of being like a young gay boy who is really into fantasy and not to Mm -hmm. like position him as that. But like the dad being like, "Uh, come on, what about sports? Right. Yeah. You're not going to gym class anymore. It's like, oh, God. 
Yeah. Why aren't you drinking eggs with your pops? Like, yeah, it did feel like he was like really pushing like a hyper masculine. Yes. Like I was trying to articulate in that in my notes because I was just like, it's not that like reading books or an interest in fantasy is feminine, but that's the way the dad was framing it. So it was mm-hmm. bizarre. Yes. Yeah. Well, and also seemed in my, sorry to harp on this, but to mm-hmm. me, like when I was watching it yesterday, I was like, oh, I get it. Like the death of the mom is sort of like the death of the imagination of the household, like the death of dreams the death of like Mm. self-acceptance like all of these magical sort of ethereal things like yeah I had I had even forgotten that Bastion's mom had died Mm -hmm. and that that's what was going on in his life right it's so quickly skimmed over in this movie that like it is glossed over but then it comes back hard yeah (laughs) right because he's like my mom had a name and that's gonna be the new name of the empress and then it's like his mom's name was moon child that's so cool (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) is that what it is yeah, because that's what he yells out. I think out. that's what he yells. He yells Moonchild. I've never known what it is all my life. I have never known what the name is. I can't understand what he's saying. And the <gasps> and the subtitles did not say. Whoa. They just said yelling. I had to Google it. I feel like maybe they keep it intentionally low so you can like project whatever you want onto it. Because I couldn't understand it either. And then I Googled it. And it said Moonchild. And then wow. it was like earlier, he was like, my mom had the most beautiful name. I was like. Damn, Bastion, you're right. Yeah. Moon That's an awesome name. Child. Moon Child. Yeah. I watched it twice. And the first time, I think it was on maybe HBO Max. But since then, within the past like week, it has been taken off of that platform. But whatever platform I watched it on initially, the subtitles are there. And it says Moon Child. So, huh. yeah. Yeah. I think I watched it on... Um... I rented it on Apple. Mm-hmm. And the it almost seemed like I was reading another dialects uh <laughs> interpretation <laughs> subtitles yeah some movies do that so anyway so point is bastion's mom has passed away i think we're to understand that like his immersion in like books and fantasy is like a way that he's coping with his loss not totally sure but anyway he reads a lot of mm-hmm. books and his dad hates it <laughs> Um, He's like, math and eggs and gym class. (laughs) (laughs) So on his way to school, some bullies chase Bastion. And he goes into this building to hide where he meets a man who is reading a particular book. It's his Santa, basically, is how I would, because it's like the role, and maybe it's just because we just did our like holiday segment, but I'm like, oh, mysterious older man with white hair who gives you a critical prop and then never shows up again Mm -hmm. it's his santa yes totally exactly (laughs) and so santa is like kid the books you read are safe and yeah sure you can escape into the story but you can close the book and become a little boy again but the books i read aren't like that and bastion's like what and then the man gets up to answer the phone and bastion takes a closer look at this book he's reading called the never ending story mm-hmm. hey that's the name of the movie <laughs> and then bastion steals the book and runs off he heads to school but he's late for the math test so he just skips it and goes to the attic <sighs> and starts reading the never ending story what a legend legend <laughs> iconic i wish i would i would never but it's because i'm not 
as I'm not as brave as him. He's so brave. Mm-hmm. Once he starts reading, we are transported into the world of Fantasia. We are in this dense forest where a couple peculiar people and creatures are gathered around a fire. And then this huge guy made of stone comes crashing in. Uh, but he's friendly and he wants to join them. And he eats rocks. And he's describing how a nothingness is spreading across the land where like a place used to exist but now there's nothing there Mm -hmm. so he is going to the ivory tower to talk to the empress about it and then the other people are like we are on that exact same mission let's go right fucking now so they get on their racing snails and their bats and they set off and arrive at the ivory tower Mm-hmm. Only to learn that the Empress has fallen ill. So now their only hope of stopping this spreading of the nothingness is a warrior named Atreyu, who lives among the plains people who hunt purple buffalo. Arguably, you know, some heavy cultural appropriation that as a native mm. person, I'm going to go ahead and just uh, ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to forgive it immediately. <laughs> okay. Good to know. <laughs> Cuz as the characters are describing Atreyu, we cut back to Bastion and he looks at his like book bag or something and then there's like a native person hunting a buffalo and he's like it's the same. Yeah. <laughs> and like, it is. Yeah. <laughs> mm. It's interesting. It's I, I forgot. I always there's so many things about this movie that I forgot about, or just truly, it just didn't ever ring any alarms growing mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. But I also like have recently been having this like really annoying discussion in my peer group, my native peer group about mm-hmm. like Avatar and the way that like native indigenous people are like mythified and and mm-hmm. sort of like romanticized in media. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is like a fucking direct example. Yes. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. It's <sighs> But you know what? Uh Atreyu is um, you know, Lakota warrior. I, whatever. I don't care who, what Italian country you hail from or your ancestors do. You're in as far as I'm concerned. I kept looking for like any, um, like the author of the book, Michael Endy, who is German, making any like clear, like, and this is where I was pulling from. But I, he didn't seem to ever say anything specific and so any credit like any like reviews or in positive or negative of the book are just like Andy appears to be pulling from what he may have once heard or possibly remembered about indigenous americans and you're like yes yeah it sounds like a vague remembering appropriative i don't know Mm -hmm. well this is something that you might find very interesting jamie and um listeners is Mm -hmm. especially the lakota nation like the lakota nation has so much lore like pop like media lore around it Mm -hmm. especially because i think uh they're depicted in a lot of westerns and what have you but um Mm -hmm. in the 70s and 80s German people, like weird sort of hippie fringe groups, mm. started, I don't know how the transference happened, whether it was somebody who came over and was invited to Sundance or something, but German people started putting on powwows, full regalia, 
singing in drum groups like completely and they started putting on Sundance which is like a very like sacred ceremony that like Mm -hmm. a lot of native people have never been invited to Sundance like it's just like so exclusive and it's exclusive to like the Plains Nations Mm -hmm. and there's this really big language uh, Lakota language issue happening right now with this organization that is founded by a German man who basically took stories and language from Lakota elders and re like patented it and sold it back to the tribes. Oh my God. It's fucking insidious. And you can find videos of German people like on YouTube, like German people doing specifically Lakota practices in their way. Of course, it's completely bastardized and they don't have any, you know, but there Mm -hmm. is this really weird link, especially in the seventies and eighties where indigenous people have been truly like romanticized by German folks, especially. Hmm. That's so, I didn't know any of that. That's really either. fucked. And like, uh, and it would totally line up kind of with Michael. I mean, this, the book was published in 79. So that makes yeah. total sense. Oh my God. Hmm. Okay. Well, I, then, and then I find it kind of even more baffling than he, that he never said anything specifically that's oh my god wow (laughs) yeah it just like might have been in their in their zeitgeist a little bit like it just was something that they kind of cared about maybe not predominantly but like Mm -hmm. it was there weirdly interesting because i know that Andy was like a humanist like he and his wife were really into the heat like it it seems okay so like maybe it wasn't just like a vague like it's possible that he actually had attempted to learn about indigenous culture in in, an insidious fucked up way maybe or it just might have been in his or it might have just been around kind of like osmosis yeah kind of thing Mm -hmm. that's so bizarre wow why i want to know more about that interesting well (laughs) so atreyu shows up to the ivory tower and he is a child and everyone's like we weren't expecting a child but i guess we have no other options so hey atreyu Go find a cure for the Empress and save our world from the nothing. So Atreyu sets off on his quest and he searches high and low and can't find any cure or solution. So he decides to seek out Morla, a wise being who lives on Shell Mountain in the Swamp of Sadness for help. And along the way, his horse Artax succumbs to the sadness of the swamp and sinks and dies in a really devastating moment. Yeah. Saddest uh, 80s cinematic moment uh, short of E.T. almost dying. Yeah. Holy shit. (laughs) And that happened so early in the movie. Yeah. It's like the sad and and it's like there's plenty of sad moments later, but I was... um, I was not prepared for it. I I mean I like it's weird to be like I loved that, but like it's just so miraculous and wild to me that they put that in the movie at all cuz it feels so clearly like an allegory for like losing someone to depression and like to suicide and then you're just like mm-hmm. but it's a horse. I'm and I'm crying so much like it uh it 
That was a beautiful, really dark, fucked up. Ugh. I know. Yeah, Jenny, you should make this podcast. I'm like, how did they do that? <laughs> how is that allowed? I know. The shit that they were showing <laughs> us kids in the 80s was wild. The horse gets too... I was like, I wrote down a main. I was like, horse gets so depressed it dies, question mark? Like, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you, and then Atreyu is like begging, like... Please don't give in to the sadness. Like, keep going. You can do this. And then it it doesn't work. You expect in a kids movie, sure, there's going to be tension. You you think maybe, oh no, the horse might die. But you you know in the back of your mind, like probably not though. Probably it's going to be fine. Probably they're not going to kill an animal in a children's movie. But nope. No. Artax the horse dies in the first act or early in the second act. Yeah. Woo. And it also yeah. like. In talking, in like opening it up to the idea of, you know, depression and, and suicide and like the the evil force at play here is called the nothing. And like the fact that what they are fighting is this unstoppable wave of nothingness, mm-hmm. lack of meaning, like lack of mm-hmm. meaning is going to overcome us and dislocate us and like destroy everything in its wake and and it is such a huge allegory, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, for, I think like a lot of different things. Like I think there's yeah. so many yeah. interpretations, my kind of like first and possibly the most simple one that occurred to me was like a coming of age allegory. And this idea of, you know, maintaining your childlike imagination and curiosity being a good thing, even though society encourages you to lose those things as you get older and more mature. There's like a shades of like climate change and, you know, like sure. climate crisis and these bigger concepts that I, I didn't read into when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I just accepted like the nothing as like, oh, yeah, the nothing creepy. Mm-hmm. It's a villain. Yeah, I mean, it's and it I liked how the movie I don't know, maybe this is like why it like knocked me on my ass it was it was like, oh, the movie can kind of like meet you where you're wherever you're at. And like, however, like, it's very open to interpretation where mm-hmm. I was reading it as like a grief story and like Fantasia as like representing the memory of his mom and so when the empress is calling out to him at the end it's like Mm -hmm. if he doesn't actively engage with her memory then it disappears it goes away and like you have to rebuild it and oh there's so many Mm. crying 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 shit (laughs) it's heavy it's heavy okay so atreyu finds shell mountain in the swamp but morla doesn't live on shell mountain Morla is Shell Mountain because he's a giant turtle. Yeah. <laughs> also, we are periodically cutting back to Bastion in the attic as he's reading this book. And when Bastion learns about the giant turtle, he screams. He's like startled and scared and he screams. And it seems like Atreyu and Morla can hear Bastion's scream. Uh. What? all that about do you think and then they just kind of go back to what they were doing Morla's like anyways I'm allergic to young people which is sometimes (laughs) how I feel and (laughs) (laughs) Morla is grumpy auntie oh my god I was not a fan of Morla I I I love her her. (laughs) 
I mean, it's like <laughs> such a bitch. <laughs> she is a huge bitch, and it was clearly ruining her life to be such a huge bitch all the time. But <laughs> I also felt seen. Wait, Morla. Okay, I. <laughs> I thought Morla was a male turtle. Uh, I guess I misinterpreted that voice. No, Morla was definitely a, a gal. A lady turtle. Okay. Gender non-specific, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Either way, bitchy energy yeah. was like, well, I yes. certainly can't help you because even being near your youthful optimism <laughs> is making me physically ill. <laughs> if Morla is a man, he's giving gay grandpa who (laughs) never wanted to have kids and still doesn't Mm -hmm. (laughs) good for morla but also you know (laughs) their loss in life i guess (laughs) um okay so atreyu is like hey morla can you help but morla is like no but i guess you could go to the southern oracle for help but the southern oracle is ten thousand miles away so Good luck with that, but really, you should just give up. But Atreyu is not about to give up. He sets off again. And unbeknownst to him, this scary wolf creature, Gamork, is tracking him along the way. Mm. Atreyu is struggling. He's about to sink into the swamp of sadness. Gamork is about to eat him. But just then, a dragon dog thing that really upset me as a child named Falcor, the luck dragon flies in and scoops Atreyu up and then he wakes up a few days later and Falcor is like hey what's up I will take you to the southern oracle slash we're already almost there but first Atreyu meets these small people a married couple who hate each other named Angiwook and Urgle. Get out of my light wench <laughs> is kind of like how he enters the story. Yeah. <laughs> yes. He calls his wife his wife I, a wench so many times. They hate each other. They mm-hmm. hate each other. Yeah. Yes. And they eat worms, I think. Ugh. Which I'm more in support of. They're... <laughs> I feel like it's very, very possible that I was, um, I liked her so much that I was like overly like trying to be like, this is awesome. But I liked that like, okay, was it Angiwook and who? Urgle? Urgle. Urgle. So like Angiwook's whole thing is he's like, I'm a scientist. Get out of my light, wench. And she is like, she makes home remedies. She's making medicine. So they are doing the same thing. They're both doing science. And she appears to know that. Her husband obviously doesn't. And she's like, that's a waste of time to explain it to him. Whatever. And Mm. I, 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 I was like, I wonder... I don't know. I want to believe that that was like pretty intentional of like they're doing the same job. He just thinks his work is worthy of respect and hers isn't. Yes. Yeah. That's the vibe I get. He has always in my mind, even as a child, I was always like, why does this guy think he's such a the the fucking cock of the walk? Like uh, she's the one who's holding the shit down. All he did was make a telescope. Like, I mean, not that I could do that, but also like she makes like she she heals Falcor. She gives him that big scary shot that cracked his spine open or something. (laughs) (laughs) 
she <laughs> heals Atreyu, and and also it seems like in the scene Atreyu is very much more like with her of like yeah this guy like Enguwuk's kind of ridiculous, but hear him out. He's got this plot telescope that you need. <laughs> Right. (laughs) That he needs to spy on people who are trying to cross the Southern Oracle, but do nothing for them. Just look. Just watch. (laughs) How is that science? I just was like, just watch as they get electrocuted and then gets excited (laughs) about it either way. Right. And then he got mad because he couldn't watch someone get electrocuted. I'm like, what is your your life like? (laughs) Relax, wiki book or whatever the fuck your name is. (laughs) Inky dick. (laughs) Inky dick. Humpter dinks. <laughs> but also interesting that um also in um Princess Bride there's like a, a curmudgeon-y couple too. Yes. You know, played by oh, Billy Crystal right. and um what's that comedian's name that I love? Um Ugh. I know exactly. I'm who never you're gonna remember about. uh Carol Kane. Carol Kane. Yes, Carol Kane. Carol yes. Kane. Amazing. I was getting similar similar vibes there as well. Um, okay, so we've got Engiwook and Urgle, and Engiwook is all like, okay, Atreyu, you're going to have to pass through these gates to get to the Southern Oracle, and Atreyu is like, cool, I'm going to try it, even though he just saw another guy get zapped by the first gate, mm-hmm. but he's like, I got this, and he goes to the first gate, and these two like sphinx statues mm. with huge boobs. Nipples. Hot. <laughs> Hot. Yeah, smoking hot. They're very sexy <laughs> statues. Yeah, I know. It's like again, good for you, eighties. Those were really mm. sexy statues you put in the kids' movie. Oh god! And yeah. as a kid, I was just like, oh my, oh my god. god, there's some <laughs> boobs, <laughs> big real ones. <laughs> They're huge. <laughs> and Atreyu manages to get through the first gate because he stays confident. Then at the second gate, the magic mirror gate. Atreyu has to face his true self and Atreyu seems to see Bastion in the reflection which freaks Bastion out and he throws the book across the room but then he's like you know what I'm gonna keep reading let's see what happens it's already 7 p.m. I've already missed dinner I know my dad doesn't care about me and I'm gonna spend the night in this school attic my dad is chugging a dozen eggs at home like (laughs) he's like not that's how he's handling the grief Somehow that means he's not sober. Um, is I just think it's like he doesn't drink, but he gets really fucked up on the fucked eggs. Up on eggs. <laughs> I that was one of my questions. I was like, does Bastion stay there all night reading this book? And if so, does his dad not care where he is? That's the implication. Yeah. I feel like, and honestly, based on how bastion's dad was coming off at the beginning i wasn't like super bumped by that i was like yeah this is the kind of parent that um yeah is not really thinking about where their kid is and also i was mm-hmm. like oh maybe that like it's a it's a like late 20th century thing where your kids could just kind of be out and around and you're like nah, they'll be back oh yeah mm. i mean i was a latchkey kid kind of so yeah. there's mm-hmm. there's a heavy sort of latchkey vibes going on with bastion sure yeah so he keeps reading the book and Atreyu finds the Southern Oracle, which are two more statues also with big boobs, who tell Atreyu that in order to save the Empress, she simply needs to be given a new name. But no one from Fantasia can do that. They need a human boy from Earth to give her a new name. 
Mm. And Bastion's like, they should ask me. My mom had an awesome name. Mm. Then Atreyu heads back to the ivory tower on Falcor, but on the way, the nothing blows Atreyu off Falcor's back, and he ends up in like the land of the rock biters, which we saw one of the rock biters at the beginning. Uh, he talks to one of them, and then Gamork, the scary wolf thing, is there, and he's about to eat Atreyu, and he's like, yeah, Fantasia is this human fantasy, and it's dying because humans started to lose their hope, and that's why the nothing is erasing everything. Yeah, he he states the themes of the movie. He's yes. like, this movie was, in a way, about authoritarianism. If you didn't pick that up, I'm a wolf puppet. It was about fascism and its dangers. So, yes. <laughs> like, I love that scene. And and Gamorg is like an agent of the nothing. So Atreyu is yeah. like, well, fuck you. And he stabs Gamorg in another scene that I was surprised is in a, chi- a children's movie because... Because mm. it's yeah. violent, it's bloody. You see, like mm-hmm. lots of blood. Badass. It's badass. Caitlin, have have I not been saying for years now? Is like we we should be allowed to kill the evil villain mm-hmm. if they're truly, truly, profoundly evil in the way that Gamork is. It's so satisfying. Yeah, yeah. It's like we don't need a we don't need a like a redemption arc for Gamork. Mm-mm. No, that's why I can't stand like Marvel movies and shit. I'm yeah. like, kill these motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry. It's fantasy. That is a bad dog. They're horrible. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Also, I just want to say before the Gmork slaughter, <laughs> we could call it a fight. It's not a slaughter. Um, <laughs> Gmork attacks, and then he just right. happens to be holding the knife. Um, but when he has the um, conversation with the rock biter, it's also another tear jerky moment in the movie, I found, mm-hmm. when the rock biter, this big unstoppable beast of mm-hmm. made of stone is like all of my friends are gone like all of the people i love yeah. are gone and we, there's nothing left of us like even the rocks have disappeared it's just like Damn. oh god why oh I, I yeah that that scene really fucked me up it's it's so like it's so heavy and it's and it's like atreyu is fully engaging with it and it's just like there's no real solution to the scene they're both just like talking to each other about like how they feel that they have failed others and how the world has failed them and that's just like the whole scene mm-hmm. it yeah yeah it's really beautiful i really i, I love the rock eater i mean i i think yeah me too because it's big fan he, he really did everything he could he did his damn best and i hated to see him down at the end. Yeah. I mean, he'll be, spoiler yeah. alert, he'll be back. He'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Riding his big stone uh, wheelbarrow power wheel, thing. like, trike. Yeah. It reminded me of, like, it when you're, like, if you're ice skating as a kid, it's like the little penguin that you hold so you don't fall <laughs> over. <laughs> I thought of it like that. Exactly I thought of that. it as, uh, you know, as an 80s kid, a big wheel. Oh, yeah. Like a rock big wheel. Yeah. That is way more likely than the very obscure <laughs> ice skating thing I was describing. <laughs> well, again, that's the beauty of this movie. There are so many ways to interpret it. Truly. Anything is possible. Yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, Atreyu has killed Gamork. Falcor shows back up. And Atreyu and Falcor return to the Ivory Tower 
and atreyu is like hey empress i'm so sorry but i failed and she's like no you didn't you brought the human earth boy with you and he's like what i did and bastion's like what are they talking about me and the ivory tower is crumbling and there's chaos and atreyu is like well where the hell is this boy and bastion finally realizes that he needs to do something he needs to give the empress a new name so he like goes to the window it's like lightning and storms and he screams something that's pretty indiscernible but everyone's like my mom's name my <laughs> like i feel like that i feel like that's why you can't hear it well is you're supposed to be projecting something else onto it i guess yeah, yeah. <laughs> but canonically he says moon child so he screams it out and then we cut to a scene with bastion and the empress in darkness Fantasia has disappeared, but it can be reborn from Bastion's wishes and dreams and imagination. So he uses that to rebuild Fantasia. And so then we see all the characters that we've seen throughout the movie, Atreyu and his horse, the rock biter, uh, Deep Roy and his snail, etc. And then we see Bastion riding on Falcor. And he's like, what else do you wish for? And Bastion's like, I want to go and fuck up those bullies from the beginning of the movie. So he I does do that. I like he has a realistic child impulse. He's like, I want to ride a dragon and <laughs> yeah. murder everyone who's ever been mean to me. And you're like, <laughs> yeah. Yep. And uh, that's the movie. So let's take a quick break and we will come back to discuss. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Before we get into the discussion, can I tell you what happens in the rest of the book? Please. You would love to hear. It was really, really interesting to me. So I'm pulling heavily from an article by a writer named Helen DeCruz. The article is called What We Can Learn from the Never-Ending Story, Authoritarianism, Fascism, and the Power of Imagination. Holy shit. Wow. It's like... <laughs> Buckle up. Wait, what, This you said the book was written in the 70s? It came 79. out in 79 and was a big hit in Germany and then was like translated and so the kind of production history is that Michael Endy, the author, was originally very, very excited that they wanted to make a movie of his work. He mm-hmm. sold the rights to the, the work for $50,000, which is not enough. Nothing. Oh Even in 1980s money, God. that's nothing. For the amount of like times, I feel like that's just my viewing. That he's earned back is my (laughs) solo viewing. (laughs) It's so, uh, and I feel like we've covered, I'm trying to think of a comparable example, but it's like writers get screwed all the time in ways like that or or people with life rights or like any sort of adaptation Mm -hmm. stuff. Like you hear so many stories like that, but he was originally like, this is great. Like a, a German director wants to adapt my work. This is amazing. Not realizing, I think, what happens in a lot of those cases, which is that once you have sold the rights, you have very little control over what they do with it. Mm-hmm. So he's assuming his whole book is going to get adapted. He's thrilled, as is um his wife, he has like, this is like very ancillary, but I enjoyed reading about it. He had this like long, it seems like kind of very beautiful relationship with a um, German actress named Ingeborg Hoffman, who um, was a pretty successful German actress and had a um, had a huge hand in, in kickstarting his career. I feel like you often hear the story in the reverse, but she mm. like used a lot. She thought he was a really talented writer and used a lot of her connections to like kind of get him his start writing. And they had a very close collaborative relationship. So even though Andy is the credited author, he would always say like, well, but like none of my work would exist if I wasn't in this relationship with this amazing person, mm. which I thought was very nice. Mm-hmm. But anyways... He grows to really hate 
the fact that this movie is being made because they're like, okay, it makes the most sense for the three act structure and for like the ethos of Hollywood in the eighties to just adapt the first half. Hmm. So the movie we see is just the first half of the book, which I think kind of leaves it ending on this very optimistic note of like, you know, Bastion is going to rebuild Fantasia, which is called Fantastica in the book. Who knows why? But mm-hmm. I just want to quote Helen DeCruz's recap of the second half of the book because it's quick and it's good. So the differences in the book, as far as, as I can tell, it's very, very similar, except a big difference that it seems like Andy was very intentional about was that uh, Bastion was bullied because he was fat and because he was like considered to not be traditionally intelligent. So in the book, like it's constantly referenced, especially that like Bastion has extreme issues with his own body and how people talk about him, including his father and including his bullies. Wow. That's like inherent to the character in a way that is not adapted in the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, So here's the recap. Quote, in the second half of the book, Bastian creates Fantastica anew. He can do what he wishes. Oh, the other difference is that when people in Fantasia or Fantastica die or are lost to the nothing, they Mm -hmm. turn into lies in the human world, which is not, it gets very like philosophical and I'm like I'm not smart enough to understand what he's trying to say here Mm -hmm. but like (laughs) if you are a dragon that is consumed by the nothing you turn into a lie that is told on earth that is how you so there's like a direct consequence to the real world like you become fake news (laughs) you become a Tucker Carlson episode (laughs) in the real world it's really like it's clear that like Andy's trying to like do something but anyway okay yeah so bastian creates fantastica anew he can do what he wishes protected by the amulet Arin, which gives him amazing strength and ability it also gives him the physical shape he believes he wants he is no longer short or fat but tall and athletic clearly bastian loathes himself as he truly is and this self-loathing distorts his relationship to fantastica His wishes are clear wish fulfillment that slowly erode his sense of true identity. Each wish he makes, he loses part of his memory. Soon, Bastion falls under the spell of a cunning witch who aims to use him for her own purposes. He loses his friends, including Atreyu and the luck dragon Falcor, as he turns against them. Bastion's lack of memories and proper self-respect ultimately propel him to almost crown himself the Emperor of Fantastica after the childlike Empress, disappeared without warning, has given him the Orin and all of his wishes came true. He believes this is a sign that he is her successor. Um, So Hmm. it totally undoes the work that happens in the first movie and it becomes this like I think that the way it's written about is that this is an authoritarian kind of like cautionary tale the way that it's written Mm. and the moral as I've read it it goes on it goes on for a while but like Mm -hmm. Bastion by acquiring power and then like altering himself to look the way that he believes he should and like exerting power over others ends up ruining Fantastica a second time Mm -hmm. and it's not until he can accept himself as he truly is and love himself as he truly is physically emotionally and everything else that he's able Mm -hmm. to truly like engage with this 
fantastic world he's created responsibly. So the wow, book, it's a real Kardashian tale. It's wild, mm. yeah. And I, I mean, I read. I was like, that's really interesting. I'd be interested to read it. But I get why that's not in the movie. <laughs> that's so depressed. Like it's really, um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, the the second half of the book is wild. So ND was really um, angry that they only adapted the first half, mm-hmm. and he believes that uh, seeing the movie killed his wife, which is another wild. His his wife did see the movie uh-huh. and went home and went to bed and never woke up. Are you fucking kidding me? No way. It is so bizarre. Yeah, she saw a screening of it, and she was like, I didn't like it. And then she died. Oh, my God. (laughs) First of all, how could you not like it? I know. (laughs) First and most importantly, Ingrid. Uh, But, yeah. Fascinating. Uh, Um, Very bizarre. To, and then to supplement your research, Jamie, and I'm pulling this from scholarly journal Wikipedia, oh, hell that yeah. the second half of the book was eventually used as a rough basis for the second film, Never Ending Story 2, the next chapter, released in 1990. Um, I have not read the book nor have seen that movie, so I can't speak God, about such a bummer. How- how that adaptation goes um i have watched i have seen the second movie okay. and i mm. have very few memories of it it certainly was not as impactful as the first i remember feeling like jonathan brandis is trying to take the place of my bastion played by oh. uh barrett oliver and i i couldn't handle it i hated it <laughs> I, it's like when when uh, the older sister in Roseanne uh, comes back as a different actor. I, I, I just like rejected it. Sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I refuse. Yeah, no, I, I, I enjoyed reading about Barrett Oliver because he is like one of the kind of child stars that he was like in a bunch of stuff in the 80s. Yes! And then he was like, wait a second. Oh, my God. I'm an adult. Okay. <laughs> Highly recommend that everybody watches another movie that Barrett Oliver. Barrett Ooh. Oliver is like of my time. Like. The movie Daryl mm-hmm. is another one of these 80s mind fucks. Mm-hmm. It's terrifying and strange. I've never heard of it. Wait, what is it about? I think it was like a Disney made for TV movie, but it's about this kid that he he's found in, abandoned in a mountain by a family. And they sort of like take him to scientists because he has all these special abilities and I can't remember why he has special abilities. Perhaps he's like psychic or just like a, he's just like a kid who is magical. Okay. And it's a, just a very strange orphan fantasy. I don't know. It's okay. Weird, he was also in <laughs> Cocoon. Yes. Mm. Yeah. This kid, this kid was prolific. I, I just love when a child star is extremely prolific and then they're like, I'm out of here. Because then mm-hmm. what he does is he then becomes a really specific scholar. He's like a scholar on in like... 19th century photography processes now that's really? what he's up to okay. yeah that's awesome he's ha- he's just chilling yeah good for him i know yeah i i didn't know any of that until like doing a little bit of prep for this episode about all of that adaptation stuff and how the author of the source material got screwed over and then his wife died after this movie did kill movie. his wife that he loved so much, oh. and then, but 
outside i mean honestly i think that like the the worst part of this is that he got so financially fucked over because it sounds like they continued to use his work in future adaptations i don't imagine he was paid again Mm -hmm. but as far as like the portion of i feel like the story the half of the story they adapt is like it works i don't know it's beautiful Mm -hmm. what studio what produced it like what where did it good question it was like it was shot in a lot of it was shot in Germany because it's German. It's a German director. It's a Wolfgang German film. Peterson. Yeah. Because he directed a movie I've only heard said out loud. Das Boot. Uh huh. Yeah. What? Das Boot is very famous German film. Yeah. I was like, that's the Germanest film I could think of. Isn't it a war <laughs> movie? I think so. Yeah. So I'm like, why did they give him the never ending story? I don't really understand. Oh, uh, but he did a great right. job. Oh, and then he went on to, I didn't realize that he's the director of Air Force One and Outbreak. And so he like, it seems transitioned at least partially into like American cinema. He also directed The Perfect Storm. Oh, and Troy. Okay. Poseidon. Yeah, yeah. There was a time a lot where... of action adventure. Yeah. The the perfect storm goes down in history for me as one of the worst movies I have ever seen. It's it was so bad, so bad that so I was bad. laughing aloud for the entire second half of the movie in the fucking theater. Like, oh my god, horrible. I'm just fascinated by people with the first name Wolfgang. <laughs> I. That's cool. How'd you get here? I. I... Well, also every time I, I confuse Wolfgang Peterson and Wolfgang Puck all the time. So I'm like, oh yeah, Wolfgang Peterson. He has some restaurants. He has a line of uh, really heavy duty cookware. Yes, and I have some. I have it. I used to have a boss named Wolfgang Hammer, and I was like, that's not a real man. What? How is he standing before me when that couldn't be true? But he's real. You know, the real award in NeverEnding Story, I think, goes to the um, production design and the costumes and the makeup. Mm-hmm. My God. It's and I think that the, beautiful. the youth performances are really good in this. Like, I, th- I mm-hmm. thought Atreyu was really amazing. And as as was Bastion. I, re- I mean. And the childlike empress. She's pretty good for the she, four lines oh she has. God. Yeah. Those gigantic, like those plate sized eyes i was like oh she i I looked her up as well she's like a professor and then she later became like a lyrical dancer everyone in this movie seems to like have gone on to like live their truth i appreciate it amazing amazing interesting Mm -hmm. as far as what we tend to focus on discussion wise um i couldn't help but notice that almost all the characters are male or male coded there's not that much in the way of women or girls and if they are present in the story they're like the empress who is not on screen until the very end of the movie yeah there's she's dying and she's dying and she yeah she like kind of needs to be rescued like that's yeah yeah for sure that's yeah that's the kind of like the thrust of the narrative. I keep saying thrust in recent episodes and I we've yeah <laughs> can't explain it. I don't know which of us started it, but one of us needs to stop. <laughs> well, it's not going to be me. I'm going to keep thrusting. I said that out loud yesterday in our Shrek 3 episode. And I was like, why are we saying thrust right now? <laughs> this is not okay. <laughs> Look, 
What's not okay is that the term has been, you know, really manipulated to mean something untrue. You know, it's true, inappropriate. I saw an old. I don't know what I was watching, but I saw like an old timey clip of something, of like a grown man talking to a child, where he's like, (laughs) where he said, "I'm so thrilled I might bust." No. You used to just be able to like say kind of whatever. Yes, <laughs> I don't think bust meant the same. No, probably not. I hope. I hope not. Ugh. He was like an adult man talking to Shirley Temple or something. I don't know what the fuck I was watching, but he's like, I might bust, and you're like, oh my god, she's seven. Don't say bust. Yikes. Gross. Anyway, so sorry for my vocabulary, but the yeah the the premise of the movie is that Atreyu needs to save you know this young girl who for our purposes literally a female character that needs a man to give her a name yes <laughs> yes to be yes which i think does remove a lot of important context but on its face that is true yes so there's her then you've got the um what is her name urgel who is the his wife character of this science Mm -hmm. guy who is given much more i wouldn't even say he's given more narrative significance because like all he really does is show atreyu where the gates are Mm -hmm. to get to the southern oracle but he's given way more screen time because there's just a few moments where this married couple are on screen together they're horrible to each other they clearly hate each other he is throwing very gendered insults her way Mm -hmm. and he calls her a wench several times like we mentioned and then she's not allowed to be in the movie after that because the movie kind of values his knowledge and skills more than hers. Yeah, he just seems like more eager to be on screen than she does. <laughs> <Yeah>. Which is <laughs> like slamming her out of the way to be like, and my science. Yeah. Which I was like kind of, I was honestly kind of like a little surprised that that happened because the way they're introduced, he looks like the buffoon and she looks like, like, oh, well, I actually keep shit running here. I'm just not respected due to society mm-hmm. <laughs> also in fantasia apparently yeah um, right. still a very patriarchal society there yeah um, mm. but then it like kind of changes and then by the end she's the one that is like yeah very out of frame and then Engawook is like stating themes of the movie in a very profound way and i'm like i wish that urgle was saying this and not him because it's like she was positioned as the person who was like smarter and mm-hmm. but then i was also was i not moved when I heard, you know, Anguik describe the like mirror of like who you truly are, like kind people find they are cruel, like mm-hmm. courageous people find they are cowards. Um, I just felt like he didn't earn it in the way that she did. I wish she had had those lines. I agree. It's a, like a white man's fantasy. To me, like so much of what we know about fantasy, especially in film and in cinema, is it is from a white male mm-hmm. patriarchal point of view so you mm-hmm. really rarely get you know i feel like we see it as recent as like game of thrones and shit yeah and it's like oh you still cast the brown people as wild and like stupid and savage and mm-hmm. <laughs> you know like the black people as slaves like come on mm-hmm. oh I... yeah it's pervasive yeah and and also like like you're saying Janet like has not gone away in a way that is like fucking infuriating yeah that uh, that that goddamn series I was like (laughs) I will say that the movie had 
more diversity than I would have expected, especially from a movie from the 80s, at least for the first like 25 minutes of the movie, because you've got Deep Roy playing the guy with the snail whose name, according Mm -hmm. to IMDb, is Teeny Weeny. Okay. That seems and respectful. They never refer to each other by their names on the movie. I didn't yeah. think so. Okay. Deep Roy is extremely iconic, though. I mean, like, mm-hmm. legendary. Uh, I love a character actor. I salute him yes. forever and ever. Mm-hmm. Though his voice is dubbed over by another actor doing... I think I couldn't remember if it was an American accent or a British accent. Mm-hmm. So, so Deep Roy's voice was not used in the movie and his voice got dubbed over i wonder why yeah i'm not sure and then you have the character of i also don't know if this was this character's name was spoken aloud but chiron karen not sure played by moses gunn he's the character who's like we summoned atreyu to the ivory tower like the spokesperson for the empress yeah exactly right and I believe he does not come back, right? Like he No, I don't think so. I, I don't know why like I don't usually do this for Bexel class episodes, but like I, I went really deep because I just like hadn't seen most of these actors before. Like I recognized Deep Roy, but that might have been it. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, it's it's giving like Canadian T V movie <laughs> casting. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> And so I, I ended up kind of like doing some some reading on, on everyone and the actor who plays Kyron, I think it's Ky- like Kyron, Karen, whatever it is. Yeah. He's really fucking fascinating. Like he was like, I think kind of like a forgotten character actor who once I looked at his filmography, I was like, oh yeah. Like for some reason I watched Little House on the Prairie when I was um, home alone when I was a kid. And he does have kind of a very memorable arc on Little House on the Prairie. He plays hmm. like a boxer, but now he's a farmer and he's hanging out with the kids. And like he's his name is Moses Gunn. He won like an Obie Award. He was like a very famous theater actor. And then he pops up in this movie for not enough time, but like he just mm-hmm. was kind of a an overlooked character actor, as many character actors are. So shout True. out Moses Gunn. I think I remember him from either Little House as well mm-hmm. or I don't know. The Cosby show, I think. He was also on the Cosby show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, I mean, I was like, I was a Nick at Night kid. I watched, I did, mm-hmm. well, I mean, it's like, we don't talk about it now, but I did watch the Cosby show when I was a kid. Sure. Yeah, he was in, he was kind of like a, he was in everything. Right. Um, mm-hmm. He was in, you know, Hawaii Five-0, the mm-hmm. original one. He was in Ooh. Roots. He was in mm-hmm. Little House. He was in Amityville Horror 2, The Possession. You know, he oh, was in Shaft. everything. He was in Shaft? Yes. No way. A legend. A legend. So like shout out to Moses Gunn. Um, And I think that he was like even more regarded on stage than he was in Mm. movies and TV. Yeah. I mean, it's like, and again, it's like, that's not a lot of diversity at all. And those characters could be removed from the story. Right. But I am happy that they're there. I don't like, I I was, I'm curious what you both think. Because I was kind of like struggling with the many different reads you can have of this story where there's no need for it to be so driven by young white 
boys and men, which it absolutely is. Mm-hmm. And and so sometimes I'm like, okay, like the whole kind of arc for Bastion is like he needs to become confident enough in himself and like stand in his own sort of um, identity enough in order to be like, I am the protagonist, which is like not really a problem that white men have historically had. (laughs) However, Mm -hmm. I was like with, with the read of like, this is a grieving child who is not being given the support that he needs from anyone in his support system and anyone who's supposed to be looking out for him there was also a read of it where I was like good for that kid you know like he the way that the movie sort of laid out made me think a lot about like oh this kid really needed to like see himself somewhere as someone who could be empathetic and impactful and Mm -hmm. navigate a difficult situation and survive it which is like what Bastian needs to do and he doesn't have that support from his dad or from his math test i think that's his entire support system is (laughs) yeah his bully is his dad and his math test and so there's ways i don't know like i i was seeing it all these different ways it's a puzzle yeah i mean i think it would be far more impactful if it had been a character who is largely under or unrepresented in media and literature reading this book and seeing the, or being able to plug themselves into the story or seeing themselves in the story and then like developing that confidence. But yeah, like you said, Jamie, that has never been a problem for cishet white boys and men. So right. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not as impactful as it could have been certainly. No. And I feel like ultimately this is a movie about how reading is good and cool. And since we famously don't read on this podcast, I don't support the message of the movie. Wait, I have a, was this like, I was like, I vague, I have like very, very vague memories of like, maybe some of the only imagery I saw of the never ending story as a kid, because I didn't see the movie, was like, posters at the library about how reading is awesome would Mm. that have happened oh yeah yeah yes i think that there was like in the early 80s i remember being i again i'm so interested and fascinated by what was happening in the 80s with sort of this uh i think the reagans had a lot to do with it because you know Mm -hmm. barbara was or not barbara um nancy reagan was such a pro like family person Mm -hmm. so she was really into like literacy and parenting kind of stuff Mm -hmm. and so there was a lot of like propaganda about how to raise your kids correctly and um right in like in like a very like rigid family dynamic yeah and a very republican uh way Mm -hmm. and i think that we see a lot of media from this time that is about the loss of imagination and like the like princess bride for better or worse is also the sim- a similar sort of setup and concept mm-hmm. where it's a boy being told a story by his grandpa mm-hmm. and it's about this adventure and 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 he's he's in the beginning of princess bride he's playing a nintendo he's playing an nes and mm-hmm. like is and his grandpa comes in and he's like gosh you know you don't you don't know what real stories are about you know <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like just like never ending story <laughs> santa he's like my books yes beat me up and you're like <laughs> and that makes them awesome <laughs> yeah. meanwhile yeah. it's like 
sir, have you ever played Zelda Breath of the Wild? Because that's... (laughs) (laughs) Truly, some of the best storytelling is happening uh, via video games now. Yeah, exactly. Joke's on you, fuckers. But I also do think that, like... I attach myself to that messaging because I was raised with it. Like there's a part of my brain that is like actually like ignited Mm -hmm. by that kind of messaging. It like I was indoctrinated with that messaging that like video games are bad. They teach you how to kill. They rip away your imagination. Mm -hmm. Books are where the real answers are. Mm -hmm. And, and I believe that it's so fucked up, but I like, I bought into it. And sure. Yeah, of course. I still played video games, but like I, I like. <laughs> but it's like it's both. It's almost as if yes, there is some great storytelling in video games, in movies, in television, and books. I guess, but <laughs> like, there's also. I'm kidding. Books are cool. Um, I know how to read. Okay, um, <laughs> but there's also like bad storytelling across all of these mediums. So it's just like it depends right. on the quality of. The story. Yeah, book bookheads really kind of obscure how many terrible books there are out there. Much like there's a million <laughs> oh. terrible movies and video games. Like if yeah. there's yes. If there's an art form, there's a lot of bad versions <laughs> of that art form. Yes. Yeah. If you've been to a stand up show, you understand that. Um <laughs> uh uh-huh. but yeah, I'm gonna I was so while I do think it is like very you know, it's like hard to even say of the era because it still very much happens all the time where it's like there is a you know little white boy who is put into like the role of protagonist who needs to believe he's the protagonist when there's so many people and and groups who are never told they're the protagonist and it's like Mm -hmm. reinforced over and over and over and so on that end you're like well there's actually not very much being challenged right but I also do like have a lot of love for and like really felt I don't know, just like watching a kid find a character that they're like, I, you know, if this character can do it, then so can I. Because I remember feeling that way a ton when I was a kid. And like, Mm -hmm. I was like going back to my Lemony Snicket books where I always, all roads lead back to my Lemony Snicket books where it's like, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, like just a specific character or book or memory that you know exactly where you were at in your kid squishy brain life when you were going through it and it was like a moment or whatever it was that like helped you push through it and it's like those are some of the most I don't know like intimate and like formative memories you can have and it's Mm -hmm. cool that there's a movie that like tracks that exactly of like totally and tells Bastion at the end like you are important to your favorite character too like that's who makes me emotional mm-hmm. it's very nice yeah I really love it yeah on top of that this is a story where I mean it's kind of hard to say who's the protagonist if well it's like obviously like it's Bastion's story it's like Mad Max Fury Road <laughs> who is, whose yeah. story is it? <laughs> it's Bastion's story and then he's sort of like living vicariously through the other protagonist which is I tray you both characters are little boys who are openly expressing emotion, openly crying. They are like struggling. They're being vulnerable. They're struggling. Mm-hmm. They don't feel emasculated by their struggle. They're failed by people around them who have good mm-hmm. intentions constantly, which is always something that I feel like is underrepresented in kids' media. Is like it's always like villain the guy who's failing you intentionally and maliciously when I feel like it's far more common for kids to be what happens with 
Bastian's dad with like someone that I'm sure that if his dad could show up for him the way that he needed to, he would want to, but he mm-hmm. can't. Right. And so like Bastian's totally isolated. Yeah. And so, and with Bastian specifically, again, he's this little boy who is a gentle book loving boy who gets very emotional with the art that he consumes. And then it's the relationship that he had with his mother and the grief that he's feeling uh, toward his mother's death that like kind of saves the day where he's like, oh my gosh, like my mom's name was Moon Moonchild and that's your name. So like the How kind did of Moonchild climax- and that man end up getting married. Like <laughs> oh, that's what that's why I'm saying like when when Moonchild died, that house went to shit. <laughs> yeah, why did Moonchild marry this guy who guzzles raw eggs every morning? Like He's like, "I the- god, I think Moonchild used to make this for me when she was alive, but no." But how did she cook them? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> she probably scrambled them and didn't drink them raw just a thought but anyway um <laughs> but um yeah so it's like his connection and you know we were just talking jamie about like we're always talking about so many movies being about a relationship between father and son and while this is that to some degree it's about how bastion's dad is failing him and he cannot look to his dad for any type of support where a lot of movies about fathers and sons the father is failing the son but the movie is saying like this dad is teaching his boy how to be a man and how to repress his feelings and isn't that awesome like celebrating the resilience of a child because the child has to be resilient right right totally and this movie doesn't go in that direction. Um, it shows like this father is like failing his son in his like moment of most dire need. And, and he has to turn to books for comfort. So yeah, I just, I liked that. It, I think it's, it's so rare to see a story where the protagonist is a boy or a man and have that character be vulnerable and crying on screen and like things that you that are perceived by society to be like emasculating and yeah and have those qualities be like celebrated and i love that like exactly i mean i love that he gets to stab gamork atreya does <laughs> yes. but that the sort of like i felt like the underlying message there and i guess like i i'm like currently kind of in like grief mode so i was like really leaning heavy into the the grief reading of this movie mm-hmm. but I really I really appreciated how it seemed like Bastian was being encouraged by the book and Atreya was as well to just like look it in the face and confront it and as painful as it clearly is it's like that's why I don't know I was back and forth because it's like I rarely want a male protagonist but I thought it was it was <laughs> rare to see like a young boy encouraged to confront an extreme emotion as Mm -hmm. a positive and that's just like not common yeah I liked it I think for me as much as I want women and girls at the center of stories that I consume Mm -hmm. I also want boys who are challenging masculinity for like, sure i also de- i have it the, the, the desire like knows no gender it's sort mm-hmm. of like this the same for me like that journey feels the same because perhaps it is the same that like mm-hmm. a woman as central 
is the anti-masculine, you know. Right. Yeah, I see what you mean. Thrust, if you will. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, no. You've got another person on board. <laughs> Woo. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree. Like, I I don't know. And I feel like the, the, the central, uh, as much as it's like, the childlike empress which what a character name um but <laughs> mm-hmm. the childlike empress she is so not a part of the story until the very end but then she ends up being this embodiment of his mom's memory and that was something again i think it was just because we covered a million holiday movies where dead mom is so part and parcel to every holiday movie that's ever come out oh my mm-hmm. god i never thought about that but oh. yes <laughs> Like Fuck. Disney Renaissance and every holiday movie ever, mommies, they're gone. They're Mom, gone and it's because, vague. Because uh, <laughs> Santa isn't a mommy. Santa is a daddy figure. So we can't Santa be having mommy figures. Daddy. Yes. <laughs> so I think I was like, that trope has been on my mind recently anyways. And so at first I was like, oh, dead mom trope. Like, what are what are we going to do with this? But I think, th- I again, I'm just like, it ended up kind of working for me because so often even though Moonchild the dead mom is extremely vague and we don't know a lot about her I thought it was like really I don't know like I just it really like hit with me I feel like so often when you see a parent who's passed on and like specifically a mother it's always very like gentle and I'm thinking of I think Casper where like the mom Mm -hmm. comes back as an angel and she tells sexy bill pullman Mm. and little christina ricci like Mm. i just want you to be happy and i want you to like move on and it's still a very like maternal like don't worry about it yeah i died at like 34 it's it's all good Mm. like and it's very like unselfish in the way i think that mothers are often kind of typecast as like the unselfish mother sure but it with the childlike empress who like I think like symbolizes his mom she is like begging him to remember her and I was like that was I don't know as far as dead moms go that felt very very active of like no don't just fucking never speak my name again because all your dad can do is not have a feeling and drink eggs like if you don't (laughs) yeah like it, it it feels like Coco, where you're like, if you don't talk about me, if you don't remember me, I disappear. Mm-hmm. So fucking say my name and talk about me and like rebuild this. I don't know. Wow. I was really into that scene. Yeah. <laughs> and then they get to be together and it's yeah. like he's with his mom and she just is able to tell him like, it's not too late. Just like, you know, lovingly get your shit together, kid. Mm-hmm. Like deal with your feelings and you can rebuild everything. Wow. But then when he does in the book, it, it turns him into a fascist. So it's <laughs> yeah, it's complicated. A, a thin fascist. So. <laughs> yes. An athletic fascist. Oh, scary. Oh, my God. Well, I just like, just let the movie be the movie author. Like, you did something weird. You did something weird. That, God. Do, does anyone have anything else to say about the flim? Uh, I feel like I could go on and on about this movie, but I want to 
spare my stupid thoughts <laughs> and let people enjoy it because also like there is something about like breaking this movie down and how hard it is that I'm like yeah the the intentions were so simple <laughs> we're pulling thi- we're trying to pull things from it that are like very much clearly in the book yeah like it, something was lost in translation between the book and the movie they aren't matching up mm-hmm. here <laughs> um but was also so moving as a kid. Yeah. Truly swept me away every time I watch it. And even when I watched it yesterday, high as a kite, just oh, only way. shoveling popcorn into my mouth, <laughs> was transported by the stupid costumes, makeup, and practical effects. <laughs> it- Some of which, when you're talking about Falcor, scary <sighs> to me. Falcor, was it was it that Falcor did Falcor blink? I was trying to figure. I was like, what about Falcor? Maybe it was the mouth. I was focused on the eyes because they seemed really wet and they weren't blinking. And I was like, buddy, they were. But I was of, like, wait, it's not real. I feel like they were blinking, but maybe not necessarily in unison. Maybe it was. And maybe that was another thing. Maybe what it was, it was like blinking like a Chuck E. Cheese animatronic would, where it's like blinking really loudly, where it's like. <laughs> <laughs> like you know yeah or there's like eyelashes that are like <laughs> sort of like you can snuffleupagus on sesame yes. street yes yes you can hear it from 10 feet away and you're like i shouldn't be able to hear someone blink like that yeah <laughs> i also do want to encourage you both to look up falcor behind the scenes falcor on youtube because i believe Ooh. that there is footage of uh, Bastion writing or Atreyu writing Falcor against a green screen or oh, like a movie. Okay. It's kind of yes. cool. Whoa. Oh, that's amazing. I would love to know how more about because there's like there is some very like, you know, dated green screen effects. But for some reason, like not to the point where I was like taken out of it to an absurd degree. I was just like, yeah, that's I guess it's 1984. Like who who care? I don't know. It, it's yeah. still the story was good enough that you're just like whatever and I did kind of laugh when Bastion at the end he's like just had this profound like breakthrough in his life and then they're like what do you want to do next he's like ride a dragon and kill some kids and you're like (laughs) yeah cool (laughs) love that for him the Disney channel had to show up somewhere (laughs) exactly Um, well does the movie pass the Bechdel test Oh no. no. I really don't think it does. It doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't. But you know <sighs> we're in a pickle. <laughs> if if only Falcor was a girl dog. Well that's what I'm saying. Like a girl a, a girl There was no reason right, that right. almost every character that Atreyu encountered needed to be male or male coded. So the only one aside from like the Empress is Morla, the turtle, who, again, I was not sure the gender of the person who voiced Morla. And Morla, I do think, was coded as a woman. Okay. All, right. all, the, all the summaries I found used she, her she pronouns. pronouns. Yes. Got it. Okay. Maybe it was just like a very grumbly smoker's voice that Yeah, I, I, I was always sort of, um, I used to put her and... Ursula the Sea Witch in the same oh, sort of like sure. smoking anti character, sure. a celebrated, a celebrated character. I love yeah, that my character. Favorite. I just am like, yeah, you're wrong to hate children, but I like how you do it. 
Uh, you so sneeze I on their face. It's kind of so a wash. Are you? Sneeze in my mouth, mommy. Like, great. Um, but yeah, and then, so there's Marla, and then there's the wench, basically, uh, according to her husband. And yeah, I mean, again, like, I... I wonder how much more impactful this movie could have been if like the Bastion character and the Atreyu character were like a little black or brown girl Mm. rather than a little white boy, which is what so many children family movies historically have been. So anyway, um, no, does not pass the Bechdel test. Uh, but our nipple scale, in which we rate the movie on a scale of zero to five nipples based on examining it through an intersectional feminist lens. Um, I, it's hard because I, I like, I've only said nice things, but <laughs> for <laughs> I guess this is going to be I'm going to use the Bechtelcast cheat code, which is to split down the middle, give it two and a half because... While I do appreciate that it's a story about a boy who loves reading and he expresses his emotions and he like wants to grieve or he's trying to figure out how to grieve and his like toxic egg dad is like, no, son, focus on math class. And uh, it's egg daddy, <laughs> egg he's, daddy. He's bad. And <laughs> it's it's like about like young boyhood vulnerability to some degree, and I appreciate that. But there also is no reason that more of the characters couldn't be girls, women, female coded. Also, no reason more characters couldn't be people of color. There also could have been more body diversity, especially since in the source material, Bastion is fat and you almost never get to see a fat kid as the hero of a movie. I think there just could have been more diversity across the board. So I don't know. It's 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 tricky. This is a complicated one, but I'll stick with two and a half and I will give one to Deep Roy. I'll give one to Deep Roy's racing snail. Mm. And I'll give my half my half nipple to Moonchild. Mm. Moonchild. Uh, I I mean I'm on, honestly like for our metric I'm tempted to go more like two, mm-hmm. which bums me out because I do think that there. I mean, if I was doing it on a personal enjoyment, how it made me feel and how much I want to watch it again, it would be like four to five. Like it mm-hmm. really really hit for me. But I mean, in terms of like intersectionality, there's not a lot of it. No. I think that like the strongest thing that this movie has going for it was what you were describing so well a couple minutes ago, Jenna, which is like encouraging young boys to confront not just like traditional expectations of masculinity, but like confront their own emotions and have that be a positive way to move through your life and have that become a heroic quality. Cause I think that that is like a really, really powerful thing that, and, and also it's like Bastion. I don't think we've like talked, but I think that Bastion like more so than a lot of like, little white boy protagonists that I've encountered throughout my life feels very like plug inable of like he's I don't know like Mm -hmm. it's just like I I found it easy to like put myself in him because 
you don't know that much about him until the very, very end. So he is kind of like, Ed, I'm like I can't think of a better term than avatar, which is <laughs> poor cultural timing. Um, but like he, he is a good character to kind of plug yourself into. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, in terms of like how much this movie is pushing back, uh, I think it pushes back on masculinity, but kind of not very much else. Mm-hmm. And like you were saying, Caitlin, there, there were, there was no reason this movie had to be, as white as it was and as male dominated as it was, I do kind of in general think that Bastion as a boy character really did work for me. But outside of that character, I like it would have been really cool to see Bastion see himself in a character of another gender or like there, mm. there were all these different ways it could have gone. Um, and I really loved the movie and I can't wait to watch it again and I want to share it with people. So multitudes for this one i'm gonna go two i'm gonna give one to ergel who was a woman in stem <sighs> and you can't tell me different that's right and then i'm giving one to the to the the titty statue that could kill you if you <laughs> if you yeah. didn't believe in yourself <laughs> <laughs> that's how i like to feel like i am in relationships <laughs> i do now recall that the lasers come out of the eyes but boy do they seem like they come out of the tits though right because oh, the tits are so right. present <laughs> that would have been too far that would have been too far that would have been pg-13 <laughs> totally oh god um i give it 1.5 i think and i for all mm. the reasons that you've already said i don't even need to mm. expound upon it um I'm, I'm taking a half a point for atreyu unfortunately i have to do that now do i love this movie yes but sure. on that scale um you know, and a lot of the 80 mo- 80s movies that I grew up with, boy. Don't hold up Really, Really mm-hmm. celebrating young boys, young white boys in a way that is uh, unnecessary. Um, mm-hmm. But that was the, I guess, important thing to discuss at the time for some fucking reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But also helped to develop... What I believe to be the active imagination that I have now was highly encouraged by the never-ending story and mm-hmm. movies of its in its genre and of the time yeah. and of its caliber. Like I really felt like I was raised by these movies and they were so strange and bizarre and mm-hmm. wild. Uh, mm-hmm. But I love them. Yep. Ugh, I want this podcast, Jana. Yes. I know. I'm going to make it. Do I want it. it. I know. I'll do it. I'll do it. And please come back anytime to our show. Oh, with love. And uh, thank you so much for being here. Where can people find you, check out your stuff, follow you online, etc.? Well, I have, for the most part, laid off Twitter because it's just Understandable. so hard to be there now. But um, I'm on Instagram still, and you can see me on Rutherford Falls. You can see me on the TV show Reservation Dogs, which is on FX on Hulu. Mm-hmm. And also you can um, listen to my podcast that I'm going to be making about uh, the macabre media content of the 80s for children. Woo-hoo. I can't wait. Cannot I can't wait. wait. <laughs> Um, you can follow us on social media at Bechtelcast. You can subscribe to our Patreon, aka Matreon, where you will get two bonus episodes every month, plus access to the back catalog of well over 100 bonus episodes, mm-hmm. all at patreon.com slash Bechtelcast for $5 a month. And if you can believe it, we are covering 9,000 different adaptations of Pinocchio this month <laughs> due to um, 
a bad idea high demand. I had. Oh, yes. High, yeah. high <laughs> demand from Two the listeners. Two things can be true at once. <laughs> <laughs> and you can also grab our merch if you should so choose over at tpublic.com slash the Bechtel cast. We've got some new designs that that oh, Jamie designed, such as Shrekian. That's it. Such as feminist icon Paddington, such as the Flubber, Flubber Mambo, Mambo by, Danny, by Elfman. Danny Elfman. One of the greatest compositions of our time. Absolutely. And with that, should we jump on our... Um, <laughs> our horny puppet dragon and get out of here <laughs> yeah baby let's go bye bye <laughs> bean dad the dress 30 to 50 feral hogs if you knew what any of those were you spend too much time online and hey i do too 16th minute of fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me jamie loftus and every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day who are they what made them so notorious how did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.